0: Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is August 10th, 2005. Hi. This is your host, Stephen Novella, President of the New England Skeptical Society. And with me again tonight are Perry DeAngelis. Hey, hello. Bob Novella. Hello. And Evan Bernstein.
1: Salutations.
0: So our, our President is up to it again. Uh, in the last few days, he made a comment essentially saying that he endorses the teaching of intelligent design alongside evolution in public schools, uh, essentially echoing the, uh, the position of the intelligent design proponents to teach the controversy that uh, kids will be best served if they hear both sides of the issue. And he also, in the same interview, professed his own personal belief that God created the world. I'm sure you guys have heard this about this quite a bit in the past week. Yeah, Steve, yes.
2: I've heard a lot about it. Um, but that last piece, I'm not too familiar with, because well, I, I carefully scrutinized his wording, and it was a little ambiguous. You know, teaching the controversy, not specifically saying, "Let's put this in the science classes side by side with evolution." Now he probably believes that, but he didn't say that. But what, what did he has, say about uh, you know God, cre- you know, God creating the earth? Do you have a ha- quote of the- you? Yes, the, the
0: quote is, "I personally believe God created the earth."
2: But wait a minute. Has the
0: president
3: disavowed evolution? That's the question. The Catholic Church believes God created the earth. They also believe in evolution. Has the president disavowed evolution? Catholics aren't creationists. Uh, So what? That's still a key question. It's a key question. Does the president believe or does he not believe in evolution?
0: Uh, I don't I've not s- not seen or heard any quotes that he specifically says evolution didn't happen. Your and point is well divine. taken that you know you could be a a theological evolutionist. Right. Um there's you know, there's a whole spectrum from young earth creationists who think that you know God created the world 10,000 years ago and n- no right. evolution of any kind occurred to sort of, sort of deistic evolutionists who believe completely that all life evolved over billions of years from just Cells and proteins, right? Yeah, Those the prim- primordial are that, soup, but that God, God guided the process. You know,
3: even if the president does believe in evolution, even if he does, even if he, if it's a theological question to him, this is still you know a serious problem in uh, President Bush's makeup. Um, the guy is, he's you know he's almost a religious zealot. It's a it's a real problem.
0: It's it's a problem for the president of the free world, yeah, absolutely. It absolutely,
3: it absolutely is, and 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 this is a you know, this is a tremendously dark spot on his uh, record, in my opinion.
0: And it goes hand in hand with his stance against stem cell research and his faith-based initiative. I, I mean, this is clearly part of his overall agenda. I hope the Congress is going to
3: bulldoze his stem cell,
0: uh, you know, legislation.
3: I hope they're going to I hope they're going to bowl over it.
2: Guys, I heard, I heard to. a great quote. I heard a great, great quote. 9/11 was a faith-based initiative. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Though not, <laughs> not the kind of faith that right. Bush uh, Bush endorses. Yeah. <laughs> another black
3: hole, faith-based initiatives. I mean, they're an outrage. Separation of church and state. You know, it's it's it's. Whenever the the president and the government nears religion, he he veers off course. Right he really veers off course. I mean, it's, it's it's bad. It's bad.
0: And it's not only the, the violation of um, separation of church and state, regardless of um, what you think about uh, the, the religious aspects of intelligent design, even if, The intelligent design proponents are often coy in saying that they're not talking about God; it's just some kind of generic intelligent designer. They're careful to remove any anything overtly religious from their from their writings. But even if we if we give them a pass on that sort of coyness, it still is true that intelligent design is not a scientific theory. It's not a scientific theory because it cannot be tested. It's not testable. It's not it's not falsifiable. And the proponents don't do anything that even resembles
2: actual science. And that's the bottom line, right? It's not yeah. science. So no, it does really not
0: belong is. in
2: science classrooms. Right. It's, teach it in right.
3: Sunday
0: school, not biology. You know, the one, uh, the most compelling thing that the intelligent design people and, you know, and Bush, you know, echoing their sentiments, have to say is to sort of teach um, the controversy. Again, I don't think that. Intelligent design should be taught as science in a science classroom, but I certainly endorse people knowing why intelligent design is not science, and using it as an example of right. of logical fallacies and of um, you know sort of pathological science. How could we do that without teaching intelligent design, or without sort of violating the principle of separation of church and state? I would I would I would guess perhaps by teaching it more in a logic or philosophy class, not a science class as science. So there, but there, that position sounds very reasonable, fair, and compelling, you know, really, uh, unless you understand that it's not science, which I, I think your average person probably does not. Right. It's hard to see the flaw in that, in that argument. So I, mean, I think that Bush is very you know, politically savvy enough to realize that his statements would probably be looked upon favorably by most Americans. And but certainly, polls, his polls certainly indicate that. And certainly, the vast majority of his constituency, yes.
2: Has anyone, has any reporter done any any follow-up with this, or is it just pretty much died right, you know, right there and no, nothing further? No one's brought this up. Saying, could you expand on this uh, point? Nobody said anything, have they? Yeah, no, the th- Democrats
3: haven't picked it up. Yeah, I really haven't
2: heard a lot about it.
3: No, they're not. They're, they're, they haven't picked it up. They're not. They're not running with it. I think they think it's dangerous. They could, and right? They could. It,
2: well, yeah, they, I, they feel, yeah, they feel you know alienated enough from the. Uh, and yeah, yeah, the, really, they're, I don't just think they're part of their. Their uh, Their
3: Their cost so benefit analysis right. is not not favorable on this one.
1: That's right. They need to move on to other. More pro- more productive things, as far as they concerned. A,
0: on a somewhat of a lighter note, Bush's science advisor, John Marburger III, uh, differed from the president, and he wrote that intelligent design is not a scientific theory, basically hitting the key point on the head. Thank goodness. I don't know Good. what that means to White House policy, but at, at least you know his science advisor, you know, understands the uh, the issue, at least as far as that statement is concerned. Amen. Uh, well. Why don't we uh, transition from that to science or fiction? It's time to play science Science or fiction. Fiction. This is a, a weekly segment. Each week I will come up with three either science news items or science facts. Two of them are genuine and one is fictitious. One is made up and... I challenge my skeptical colleagues to figure out which one is fake.
1: Challenge accepted. Alright, so
0: the, uh, the there's a theme to the three items this week. The theme is historical figures with medical ailments. I'm going to give you three historical figures and a disease that they are alleged to have had. I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time that the disease may not have may not have been absolutely proven, meaning that there was not a you know a biological pathological diagnosis made at the time. Some of these diagnoses may have been made by reviewing historical documents. Okay. But I the the two that are real, I would say that the evidence the historical evidence is very compelling. I would say greater than 90 okay. percent in my opinion. Okay. So not ironclad fact, but but. Very, very likely, and Three one I just completely months. made up. So one, in fact, there's has has no reality to it whatsoever. All right,
2: you guys ready? I bet Napoleon's in there somewhere. Nope, no uh, Napoleon. I think Lou Garrick <laughs> is going to be
1: in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> good
2: one. Thank you. What did he have again, Lou Garrick? <laughs> he had Babe Ruth disease. Babe Ruth disease. I'll
0: give you an example. One I'm not going to include. Like for example. Uh, that many uh, physicians believe that Joan of Arc had a form of right temporal lobe epilepsy. True. During during these epileptic seizures, people epilepsy. will often have religious Epigenes. visions or experiences. Um, so it's possible that some of her description of the, the visions and episodes that she had may have in fact been just right temporal lobe seizures. And people with that form of epilepsy have what is known as hyper-religiosity. They are very religious people. So that's more in the realm of speculation, but it's in sort of an interesting speculation about about her.
2: Well, Steve, that's a very interesting point because I, I think it's very uh, very intriguing that there's actually a, a part of your brain that induces these intense religious experiences. And then <laughs> it's you, very interesting. You've got to ask, well, why is that there? You know, yeah. why, you know, know, Why would that be... Be in your head. You know why? You know why is that just an important thing that he that evolved? You know wh- what kind of selective pressures are were on that? But um, well, since you bring it up, I, I mean, we
0: have to segue into that a little bit just so, just to finish that point. I, I've actually had religious people argue that it's that God put it there because He right. wanted us to believe right. in Him.
2: Right. Right.
0: Um, but from a, from a evolutionary biology point of view, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that human beings are hardwired, and and our closest relatives like chimpanzees are hardwired to surrender a bit of our of our will and ourselves to higher authority, whether that's just the leader of the pack or right. the leader of the tribe, and that even to the point of sacrificing ourselves for the greater good of our,
2: right. something bigger than us, our family, our tribe, our people. So, yeah, for, for societal cohesion, right? So that... The community is more integrated.
0: That kind of altruism, sacrificing yourself for the greater good of your rela- relations, actually carries with it an evolutionary advantage in terms of passing more copies of your own genes on to future generations. So, I mean, you don't have to hypothesize that you know God put that in our brains. That there, there are you know reasonable hypotheses about what evolutionarily why why something like that would have evolved, and then we give it cultural context. You know every culture gives it a slightly different context, but you know, there are some sort of common themes in terms of the religious context that, that people give, the basic, you know, hardwiring sense that there's something bigger than us that's, that we are part of. Anyway, back to science or fiction. So item number one: magician Harry Houdini had a collagen disorder that made him unusually flexible, aiding in his escape artistry. Number two, remember comment on them after we're done with all three. Number two, Adolf Hitler suffered from a severe form of Parkinson's disease that made him mentally rigid and inflexible. And item number three, Vincent Van Gogh suffered from an inner ear disorder that gave him persistent ringing in the ear, resulting in him famously cutting off his ear. Those are the three.
2: Ooh. <laughs> okay. Uh, pass. I'll start, I guess. <laughs> All right, Bob, go ahead. Well, Hitler and Parkinsons—I have heard about that. Uh, you could—you could see it in some of his speeches, you can see a tremor in the hand, and if you—if uh, you study his behavior later in the war, you could—you could see, uh, you know, how rigid he was in his thinking. Um, so I think that's pretty well—pretty uh, well supported. Uh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, and um, his uh, ear ringing—it uh, sounds like Meniere's disease to me. Um, and from uh, my mother ha- actually ha- ha- has had that. And uh, from what she from what she says, it's uh, it's pretty annoying. Um, I could see someone just going nuts and just lopping off their ear. That makes uh, more sense than the first one. Uh, Houdini having a collagen disorder. Now um, I could you know maybe if it was uh, tendons and ligaments or something else, but I don't think collagen a, a collagen disorder would give you flexibility. So I'm going to say that one is false. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Who wants to go next? Well, I'll say for the record, not not to try to influence your your choice, that people who have a who have collagen disorders are hyperflexible.
3: I have a collagen disorder, don't
0: I? That's... You have the opposite. Though. Yeah, <laughs> <I> no. <know. laughs> I was going to say I have a collagen disorder, made me rigid. Yeah, but, well, it's a, more of a fibroblast disorder. But um. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. You've probably seen pictures of like the guys in the f- in the, the sideshow freak shows who like could yeah. bend their arms all in half and yep. Yep. put their okay. arms behind their head. Uh, oh yes. are well, extremely does, flexible. So it's, it's the the collagen is not just in the skin, Bob. It's a it's a protein that's a major structural protein in in all in ligaments, tendons, and supporting okay. structures and everything. So sure. that that aspect of it. I mean, I'm not telling you that he right. had. I'm just saying that that that. So yes, the people with collagen correct. disorders are actually. Are flexible. Okay. I happen uh, to
1: agree with I have to agree with Bob. The first one I think is the uh, is the made up one. Okay. About the college, the two the votes super-
0: for Harry Houdini. Yeah, I'm well, going to
3: uh, I'm going to go with Van Gogh. I don't think he cut his ear off because it was ringing. Okay. I think his problems were deeper
2: than that. Let me let me add a little more then. Um, I do remember reading something about Houdini being able to dislocate his shoulder at will. Which helped him get out of straitjackets, which, you, as you can imagine, you're trying be to talk great, yourself
3: out of your answer. A great
2: aid. No, I'm just trying to. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to th- think of another another tack here. Um, I think. Uh,
3: you already gave your answer. You're done. No, so
2: David? so uh, yeah, I still think I still think it's false. <laughs> I, 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 just because you can dislocate your shoulder, well, I don't necessarily think it has to be a collagen disorder, but right, right. I'm still going with it, I guess. Okay. Right. Well, you all agree that Adolf Hitler had Parkinson's <laughs> we disease. He, he had something done.
3: going on there. <laughs> that That is, in fact, true. Yeah, he was just, stiff, and there was other things. Very wrong.
0: well established. There, yeah. there are historic, There's historical footage of him with a clear Parkinsonian tremor. In his hands. Interestingly, the uh, the propaganda guys for Hitler were very good, very thorough at eliminating any footage of him showing his Parkinsonism. But a couple, you know, of of strips of film did slip into his the later ones.
1: The later ones, right?
0: And you know, there were have been some good articles written, sort of examining his personality and his. decision making process and it does reflect a form of Parkinson's that it does result in this sort of obsessive, rigid adherence to um, courses of action, inability to change your mind or change your course of action. Which is it, it's that kind of, of <laughs> inflexibility that it, that, you know, ultimately doomed, you know, Hitler at the end. You know that and the A bomb. But <laughs> Eventually, eventually, we would have defeated him, even if he didn't go go crazy, essentially, and kill off his generals and you know, remain. Mean, so he didn't listen. Persistently to his followed, you know, insane things thing is he did action. not.
3: He didn't listen to them. He made his right. own military decisions, right. uh, many, uh, very often against the will of his generals. And
0: there was a lot of paranoia. He did kill off a lot of his senior, you know, people because of he was afraid that they were not like
3: Stalin.
1: To kill. And they were, and they did. They did have a Not
3: like generals. Stalin. Stalin killed a lot more senior generals than Hitler ever mm-hmm. thought he about did.
0: killing. did. But it's interesting to think of how much the course of history was influenced by a disease. disease True. True. Yeah. True. What would what would have happened if Hitler you know didn't have that disorder? Right. Right. Um we'll we'll never know, but it's interesting to think about. Okay, so let's go on to number three, Vincent van Gogh. Uh, in fact, there have been several hypotheses about Van Gogh. I think the most common public story is that he was hearing voices, that he basically went a little psychotic or crazy. But in there have been um, some at least one good article published in the neurological literature. Reviewing his writings where he pretty clearly describes a ringing in the ear and uh, that basically driving him to distraction, driving him crazy. And uh which probably was Meniere's disease, Bob. That was, that was I think, probably the correct diagnosis, although, again, that, that, that much is a little bit of speculation. And he did cut off his ear, probably in a misguided attempt to stop the ringing in his ear. Of course, it yeah. didn't work. But he had a lot yeah. of other
3: things going on, like I said.
0: Yeah, he was nutty. He was, but that he was, was nutty. You're right, he was nutty, and yeah. that's why it was so easy to think that he was just psychotic. But right. in fact, it, that, the cutting off of his ear was probably in response to the tinnitus, the ringing in the ears that okay. he described in his writings. The one about Harry Houdini I made up. Now, uh, a lot <laughs> of that, Bob, <laughs> was based upon the rumor that he could dislocate his shoulder at will, and some people, there, there is a rumor, um, kind of the mythology of Houdini does also include the fact that he was really incredibly flexible, um, it's all BS, actually. I, I could not find any verification of that. In fact, you know, he—he he, he was his escape artistry was largely trickery. I mean, it was—it was, lot, yeah. it was illusion. It was illusion. A lot certainly, rumors. certainly, he was extremely skilled and talented, uh, and could do things that were not mere illusion. That actually required some physical skill. But in essence, most of what he did was, was escape artist trickery—the same kind of thing that Penn and Teller. You know, do on stage today.
2: So, so you're saying he could not? There's no evidence that he can. He could dislocate his shoulder at will. That's there's right. There's nothing to support that. Okay.
0: And yeah, but you know, again, these kind of myths are. are th- that's kind of the mystique of the magician that they're using more difficult, arcane, or fantastical techniques than they really are. When in fact they're just cheating. You know, that they're just they're doing something that anyone can learn how to do. And and. Uh, maybe it requires some practice and manual dexterity, but no right. superhuman feats. But well, he, and he, well, it he serves there if, if you think they're doing their trick through some kind of superhuman or extraordinary feat, right. you won't you won't look for the simple chi as much.
2: Right. I mean, I I remember one story. Uh, I not I have nothing no evidence to back it up, but I I did read in uh, somewhere years ago that one of his famous um, um, escapes was from uh, I guess was it a London prison. And it mm-hmm. t- turned out that in in all the the hubbub and the uh, activity, they did not lock his ca- his. got uh, to lock his jail cell, yeah. and he just kind ah. of just opened it up, and there was no, there wasn't even a, any trickery involved in that. Just you know sheer stupidity on their part. Now, again, I'm not, I don't have any evidence to back that up, but I did, my memory seems reliable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that was uh, no, no, that wasn't part of the the movie, the Hollywood version of Houdini. They they just left out how he actually escaped from the prison. Uh, The best thing
3: about Houdini is the fact that after his mother died and he went to all those uh,
2: physical seances seances.
3: in uh, in his day, he then became a great debunker. And, uh, boy, debunked them mercilessly because they didn't deliver on his mother. Yeah, he
1: figured out their tricks. He he knew exactly what they were doing. He became very, very apparently upset about it and wanted yeah. to do something to get back at these.
0: Well, actually, Perry, I, I I think that, that, again, is a common myth that he initially interacted with the spiritualists because he was looking to contact his mother and then became disillusioned when they failed. In fact, that was never the case. What? He, he, he was an atheist. He never believed in life after death, never pursued spiritualists. He was angry at the spiritualists because they were using his escape artist tricks to convince people um that there were you know metaphysical happenings so like during a séance when the lights were out they would uh, you know and apparently they were tied to the chair or they were in a closet or something they would use escape artist tricks in order to get out or escape or free a limb or whatever and then cre- and then create the manifestations the bell ringing or the with the rapping, or whatever or cracking he knew, their knuckles crack, so that was you know the, the famous sisters who were cracking their knuckles but the uh, he um, uh, was was he knew that they were faking because he was a magician they were using his tricks they were some some of the some of the they were using the the standard trickery of the the escape artist, you know, magician culture to to convince people that they were performing miracles.
3: He never That's why he was angry. He never went
0: to never a
3: séance to contact his mother?
0: That was Hollywood. Never. That's not part of it. That's That I'm was not Tony part of Curtis his Perry. I was Tony that was Curtis. Tony Curtis. <laughs> <Stoney> <laughs> Curtis.
1: <laughs>
0: but uh and and same thing with you know when he died, he and, he and his wife had that um you know, secret password and everything. That was, but that a was really the Rosebud. The Rosebud. Of course, Hollywood changed that too to, to make it seem like it actually came out. But that was just another way, like a final way of debunking the spiritualist. And in fact, he was appointed as um, chairman of the committee to investigate spiritualists by Scientific American. This is back in the day when Scientific American really was the skeptical debunking organization. You know, now there's a dedicated skeptical movement, and, and Scientific American is still, you know, um, closely allied with that tradition. In fact, they're the only popular science journal that has a regular skeptical column in it. Uh, but, you know, back in the, in the day of Houdini, they were it, and, and they... Uh, set about to, to debunk the spiritualists and Houdini was the, was the one who showed them how to do it. He basically filled the same role at that time that James Randi does today. Yeah. Randi's a magician, he knows he got into this because he saw faith healers using the same tricks that he was learning about right out of the magician books mm-hmm. and uh, and realized that uh, that they were using it to pretend to to bilk money from people and to pretend that they were performing miracles. That's often often why magicians like Randy Houdini, Penn and teller make very good skeptics. in fact, I just um, read an article i'm not sure if one of you guys sent it to me, basically saying that magicians have a good a well developed sense of human psychology okay. of how people believe and how and and how they deceive themselves of course they do it's it's their stock and trade that's right So re- recently. There has been an article published by, I think, by a man called Robert Sarmast, claiming to have found Atlantis. Evan, I believe you sent me this piece. Can you tell us a little bit something about this?
1: I did. I did. The source for this is the Financial Mirror, which is the island of Cyprus's leading business newspaper, according to their website. Despite that, I continued to read the article re- regarding this and Robert Sarmest is a um he's a US citizen he's a he has a car- he had a career in architecture that's his that's his background and uh passion for ancient history mythology and lost civilizations and so forth and according to this he has found something very interesting off the southeast coast of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea of course mm-hmm. And I'll read from the article here that uh, it was no coincidence that his team discovered a three-kilometer-long straight wall intersected at right angles by another wall. This is below. This is 1.5 kilometers below sea level, 80 kilometers off the coast of Cyprus. Mm -hmm. Now, this fellow has been looking for Atlantis for well, from what I could tell, many, many years. He is seems to be very impassioned about this. He is pulling out all stops to try and find some shred of evidence that would play to his preconceived notion that the great society of Atlantis did exist 11,000 years ago and so forth. We've all heard the story of of Mm -hmm. the great lost civilization and continent of Atlantis. And here's here's what the article continues to say. He apparently adds that this will silence any remaining skepticism about his long-standing claims that modern Cyprus is the remains of a much larger and now partly sunken mass, which fits Plato's description of the ancient lands of Atlantis. So he thinks he's found the evidence: uh, this wall that is off the coast of Cyprus under under the water. I'm convinced. I yeah, yeah I I'm mean, silenced. Uh, I shall forever <laughs> there's be there's, not, on there's this nothing topic. more to say.
0: Well, the, the fact that this is endorsed by the Cyprus Tourism Organization you know, <laughs> may have something to do with their enthusiasm for these claims. And also, he's looking, apparently, partnering with the TMC Entertainment Group out of Los Angeles to undertake a two-hour documentary to you know, finance his uh, next expedition. So, you know, this guy's a self-promoter, you know, and there are local financial interests involved. Does he really think that there's an entire city under the Mediterranean, and we haven't found it.
1: Boy, you know, that's hardly
0: out in the in the depths of the Atlantic. I mean, the, the Mediterranean Sea is pretty well mapped.
1: Well, and that's where anyone who's familiar with the origins, the first mention of Atlantis, knows that it goes back to Plato mm-hmm. and to two of his um, two of his works, Timaeus and Critias, in which essentially Plato. Creates an example for his class so that he can talk further about the great uh, what a great society is and he makes up he invents a conversation that occurred between Timaeus and Critias two people that apparently didn't even. Live at the same time in real history. Right. They lived 150 years apart from each other. Right. But, Pla- but Plato just put them together so he could make his point about. Yeah, the it's like great having a, it's like
0: writing about a fictitious conversation between Einstein and Galileo.
1: Right. That's exactly correct. And
0: then somebody and later thinking that it was meant to be an historically accurate document.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Where there is absolute where the entire story itself is made up, and yet this myth has. Has survived since uh, 370 B.C. Right. uh, Well, there's I mean,
0: there's a lot of mythology surrounding Atlantis that's inaccurate. I mean, if you go back to Plato's original mention, I think the sort of the modern Atlantis, Atlantis myth is that Atlantis was this extremely advanced utopian society. In fact. Plato did not use Atlantis as an example of utopian society he used it as an example of an evil empire the utopian yeah. society in his was example Athens. was Athens Athens okay. was the shining city on the hill and then these these invaders from this evil empire out there in Atlantis were the ones that were threatening Athens but they the modern mythology you know made up Atlantis mythology has sort of reversed all of that and now reinterprets Atlantis as the utopian society. But also, Plato's description of Atlantis was as beyond the pillars of Hercules, which is what separates the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean.
1: The Straits of Gibraltar.
0: Right. So that would put it outside of the Mediterranean, Correct. as opposed to Sarmast, who's now saying that it's within the Mediterranean um, you know, assuming you know if Plato were meant you know, meant to be accurate, we don't think he did. You know, the scholars think that by you know, saying beyond the pillars of Hercules is, is just a poetic way of saying really far away. You know, beyond yeah. our, our local geography, beyond anything you would recognize. Because you know, at that time, beyond the Atlantic Ocean basically was just the edges of the Earth. I mean, it was just out there. It was it was beyond what was mapped. So it's just like saying really, really far away.
3: The, the average depth of the Mediterranean is about 4,700 feet. The guy thinks the whole city is is down there at the bottom. That's in the you know,
0: yeah, that's, that's the well, average. Well, depth. the thing is, it's it's a pretty well-trodden you know, it is. stretch of sea. It's not like it's in, in there's some trench in the middle of the Atlantic that you know, it could be missed. We we could sonar map and. Uh, Etc. I mean, we, I think if there were a city hiding under there, we'd we'd know about it. Also, there are a lot of legitimate Greek, you know, uh, ruins yeah, yeah. in the in the Mediterranean. A lot of archaeo. There's a lot of serious archaeology going on in the area. So again, it wouldn't be surprising if they did, you know, find some archaeological Greek archaeological ruins. But the other thing that's interesting about Sarmas' claims is that he's basing his his discovery on sonar. Now, hmm. sonar. Is just a, a infamous, you know, um, for for being misinterpreted in this way because you get, you know, sonar images produce, you know, um, these sort of vague blob-like images that are really good for prompting the imagination. It's like an ink blot test. I mean, you can basically see whatever it is you want to see. Uh, it reminds me of this: the uh, investigators who used sonar to look for Nessie, you know, in, in Loch Ness, right, and they came, of course. You know, they found what they were looking for. They had these blurry sonar images of a vague outline that they said, "Well, here's a fin, and here's a piece like of the, the neck." You well, just like to pick like pictures, of like ghost, the ghost pictures, and alien well, pictures, and everything. <laughs> but that's just
2: <laughs> pareidolia where you're, you're seeing a, a, an identifiable, distinct image in, in just yeah. randomness, like right. pattern pattern the canals of Mars or another great a face example.
1: in the clouds.
2: Right. Yeah, the, um, the face
0: on Mars is a good example, but the sonar is just custom made for this because you can just look at reams and reams and reams of sonar until you see a vague shape that you can be, you know, interpret as being whatever it is you were looking for. Uh, and so just, I just think it's humorous that this guy thinks he's find, st- finding stuff with sonar that you know, more sophisticated methods have not found.
1: He describes a uh, hill that he discovered using this sonar technology, and I'll quote him here. The hill as a whole basically looks like a walled hillside territory, and this hillside territory matches Plato's description of the, Acro- of the Acropolis Hill with perfect precision. Even the dimensions are exactly perfect. So if all these things are coincidental, I mean we have the world's greatest coincidence going on. hardly (laughs) thank you Mr. Sarmast
0: Um, it's it's also uh, historians agree that you know serious historians that Plato was not making a factual historical claim first of all how would Plato of all people know about some ancient island society that lived thousands of years before him how did this information magically come to him it certainly was not the common belief of of the time Uh, he was not an investigative archaeologist or anything, and if he were making that claim, it would have sparked quite a bit of controversy at the time, at his time, contemporary to him, and no one batted an eyebrow because everyone understood that it was just a made-up example for his morality story. Uh, so it's just silly, and a lot of people also make the false connection. They say, well, um, they found Troy. You know, initially they thought that Troy was. Uh, a legendary or fictitious um, city and then the, the ruins of Troy were found but they missed the fact that Troy was written about by Homer not Plato mm-hmm. uh, who was, was writing about actual um, mythology or stories uh, of the time. Plato is a philosopher that was writing a, a hypothetical story to, to, to make some certain philosophical points and basically was saying a long time ago on an island far, far away, there was this evil empire.
1: That's right. Our good friend Dr. Kenny Fader likens it to the Star Wars yeah,
2: it's a, it's story. True.
1: And, he's, and he's <laughs> he says to, uh, you know, in which the, the small rebellion overthrows the evil supergalactic empire. That's, the, that's effectively the story of Atlantis. But there's about as much, uh, there's, there's equal proof uh, that Star right. Wars is real, uh, that, uh, that the story of Atlantis is real. They're they're fiction. They're works of they're works of fiction. It's just so interesting how a small a, a detail out of a piece of fiction like that that you yeah. came up with totally blossomed into this into right. this myth that has just really sur- not only survived the ages but it's gained momentum. There's uh, certainly
0: something about it that has a common appeal. The I guess the idea of this ancient advanced civilization just is romantic. It's very romantic, and people are drawn to it. It's also a really fun touchstone to have as a skeptic because it's so demonstrably wrong that it's just wonderful when psychics and channelers and mediums claim to have been from Atlantis or to talk Mm -hmm. to people from Atlantis, like I'm reminded of Ramtha, you know, this yes. woman Jay Z Knight who built money for people by claiming to be channeling the spirit of a thirty thousand year old man from Atlantis. Um, well, right there you know she's full of it. I mean not that <laughs> not that we needed that tidbit, but it's just just it just always adds a nice little extra demonstrable piece of B S to the claims of lots of psychics and mediums. I believe Edgar, Edgar Casey, didn't he have wasn't there some Atlantis connection with him as well? Edgar Casey was you know the so-called sleeping prophet who would go into trances and yeah, yeah, through his Probably. trances
1: he would he would he would tend to i guess describe the technology that the folks of Atlantis yeah.
0: had yeah.
1: At, had at the time and apparently it was pretty similar to the technology of Edgar Casey's time
0: Right the, the, right the 1920s yeah.
1: and the 1930s he wasn't describing technology that we would recognize right and funny no one no one prior to edgar cayce mentioned anything about the technology right such as flying ships and electricity uh prior to those actual uh, real discoveries
0: prior to the prior to them already being part of the culture which is you know, that it brings up an interesting theme when you're talking either about Atlantis te- Atlantean technology or the UFO mythology it always follows the the culture of the time and you can sort of see how it's a uh, a cultural mythology there's never the the introduction of something which is clearly outside of the context of of the contemporary culture in other words, there's never the introduction of any new technology, new scientific information, you know, new facts that were not previously known. It's always this pure this this well documented cultural continuity. And when you look back, especially at like forty or fifty years ago, that's a good time. You look back forty or fifty years ago to the to what the UFO people were saying, hmm. it seems really quaint and silly to us and in fact reflects what we think of as campy 1950s science fiction movies, because that was the culture. But to them, you know, women from Venus was like a plausible idea. To us, it seems silly, but that's what the UFO people were saying back then.
2: And 50 years from now, they'll be saying the same thing about our time period.
0: Yeah, about those quaint little gray aliens that everybody claimed that they were being (laughs) abducted by. Well, and speaking of alien abductions, there was a book published recently uh, by author Susan Clancy called Abducted, How People Come to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens. Bob, I know you've heard about this.
2: Yeah, this, this book um, seems very interesting to me. I've, I've, uh, I've written a few things about some of the things that, that she touches upon. And uh, so I, I've, I've read the review, and it, it seems very interesting. I can't wait until it comes out in October. But uh, Dr. Clancy, just to give you a synopsis of what uh, what she's saying here, is that she's a first, o- first of all, she's a psychologist at Harvard, and um, this book... Um, John Mack's alma mater, right? <laughs> John Mack
0: is a right. psychiatrist who uh, believed that a number of his patients were the victims of abductions, uh, and although his colleagues generally believe that he essentially just got caught up in their own delusions and was not using scientific rigor. Yeah, I hope, I hope he, he, he reads yeah, this. Yeah, so book. he was a Harvard man. He was from, from Harvard. Well, he, he's not going to read it because he's dead. Right. Okay. Deceased. Uh, he was hit by That's a car in England, I think London. Really? Mac was? died? Yeah, John Mack
1: was killed by man. a car. This early reports. This was a year ago. A couple years, yeah, one, two years ago. Oh, it was a year ago. Oh, it was a year ago. it wasn't long ago. And yeah. early,
3: no. early reports said the car was driven by an alien. Right. But oh, but I heard that it was. They have a since a been disproved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: they have
3: since, since been dispelled. <laughs> no doubt by skeptical organization.
2: To continue, um, Dr. Clancy interviewed dozens of people that claimed to have been abducted, and uh, as part of a series of memory tests that she was running, um part of the reason for this was that uh, the reason why she focused on abduction memories was to explain kind of um she's interested in the uh, the psychology of of experiences that that transform people and and uh, she basically wants to know. Just more about you know why do people believe these weird things? So that was kind of her impetus uh, in this, I believe, and she touches on a, a lot of things that are that should be of interest to uh, to skeptical uh, thinkers. Uh, so many so many areas. Primarily, she hits on um, sleep paralysis, which is very which is very important. Sleep paralysis is, uh, I think, um, it's it's widely held, I believe, by by a lot of uh, skeptics that. That sleep paralysis is the cause of a lot of uh, a lot of these paranormal events that people uh, people ascribe to ghosts or alien abductions or or things like that. And it, sleep paralysis is essentially uh, an event that happens while you're in REM sleep, rapid eye movement, and it, while you're dreaming, your body paralyzes you. The, mo- the motor neurons in your brain inhibits any any movement except uh, for your eyes, of course, to prevent you from from acting out your dreams, which you would do if you. If you uh, were not paralyzed, and they've actually done studies on uh, these bizarre studies on cats, where they they somehow fried the uh, the center of the brain, the part of the brain that that inhibits motor movement during sleep, and cats would while they're asleep act out their dreams. Do you know the name uh, of
0: that uh, the the nucleus that they lesion to do that?
2: Yeah. The um, yes. The locus ceruleus in (sighs) the brainstem. Okay. Yeah. It's a little trivia for you guys. You You used to know that. I think when I forget stuff like that, but um, so it's during sleep, sleep paralysis occurs during these events when you wake up from a from a from a dream. Another word for that is waking dream. And during during these events, uh, you you feel paralyzed, but you're kind of still in this pseudo dream state. In that in that state, lots of bizarre things can happen because you're essentially dreaming while you're awake, and. Um, and this is what happens to a lot of these people that are abducted. This is what, what she believes and what her studies kind of point to, that this is a major uh, contributing factor to this. And, yeah, uh,
0: we, we've spoken about that before in the Skeptic's Guide. Uh, I believe I spoke about the fact that I've actually had waking dreams. Oh, yes. It's produced by, you know, extreme sleep deprivation, so I could describe them firsthand. Uh, it's very, very weird, powerful experiences, so it's worthy of study. Also, just to note, while we're on the topic of sleep paralysis, you know, Whitley Strieber, uh, who is a science fiction writer who was pr- sort of promoting the idea that he was abducted by aliens.
2: Well, what was his famous uh, book? I forget the title. Con- was not, was it? Communion. Uh, communion. Yeah, yeah, Communion.
0: He, uh, in one of his subsequent books, basically just recounted the stories of hundreds of people with uh, abduction tales. And those stories were reviewed by, I believe it was Joe Nickel who wrote, wrote and um, and Jim Baker, who is a psychologist, reviewed all of the accounts, and fully 70% of them fit really well into the description of a waking dream. So by that survey, we're we're talking about 70% of the abduction phenomenon being explainable on the basis of this neurological phenomenon, this, this sleep paralysis or waking dream.
2: A lot of people say, "Well, well, how come these people are seeing aliens and that that 's purely cultural right Centuri- centuries ago people people were still people, people still had these uh, these waking dreams or they would experience hypnagosia is another term for it, and uh, they of course didn 't seem see aliens because nobody even thought of aliens back then. They would see demons called succubi and and these witches that would that would sit on your chest and and prevent you from breathing and things. And, and I believe didn't uh, the
0: Scandinavians have a cultural. legend about the sea hag who would sit on your chest and right. suck away
2: your energy. And it was basically the same
0: experience, just with a different cultural icon. Right.
2: Every culture, every culture actually has uh, has some mention. I think in, in Japan. Well, it's really, what did the Inuit culture have? I was, wasn't it some some uh, some big now? Like the I Wendigo? Don't know. The Wendigo, I don't know. I just was just I challenging so. you, Bob, because you said every culture <laughs> <laughs> I just figured Ma- okay. and throw out an obscure culture many. and see if you knew what they had. Okay. Many cultures. Many we'll cultures we'll look that ever. up
0: and see if we can figure out okay. what the Inuit uh mythology that fits waking dreams might have been. But,
2: uh Japan had one and I, I think the name of the uh the being that they ascribed it to was something like Zanzibar, something that sounds like that. But uh I literally read like five or six cultures that all have very, you know, very similar ideas on on this weird being that would enter your room and, and and cause these bizarre experiences to happen. And another interesting thing that Dr. Clancy found out that was a lot of these people that had these so-called abduction experiences. Already had some interest in the paranormal mm-hmm. or uh, the possibility of extraterrestrial vis- visitors so they were they were prone to to believe in, in something bizarre like this and a lot of times these people would would try to find some deeper meaning in this and try to find out what really happened and they would go to a therapist and a lot of these therapists use um, you know hypnosis or even even chemicals to uh, to induce these highly uh, suggestive states, and uh, we know that in these states, you know, uh, confabulation can occur, where you just kind of stream of consciousness create these uh, these stories that that you come to believe as true memories, and and are in fact indistinguishable from from real memories. And right. uh, Bam, you've got you've got your false memory syndrome and and things that it's it's really a shame that uh, the, these therapists aren't more savvy as to. Uh, to actually what they're doing. They're you know, creating these memories. And they, they, oh, you know, it's malpractice.
0: It's total incompetence. You basically have a professional you know, who's professing to have some expertise and to be helping people. And what they're basically doing is using a discredited method, which is known to create false memories, right. known to uh, essentially create confabulation. And then they put people in, a, in this state. They ask suggestive questions, and the standard abduction scenario emerges under hypnosis. They then convince these people they've been abducted. It becomes one more piece of evidence, and you know, in, uh, for those people, those you know, investigators who who collect it, uh, becomes part of the mythology. And it's really just a a bs machine i mean they're just creating these these false stories i mean basically it is no different than the um therapists who were who were using coercive and unprofessional techniques to convince you know young women with eating disorders that they were raped and had repressed memories it's Mm -hmm. it's it's the same thing so it's hypnosis and abduction scenario but it's blatant incompetence in my opinion no excuse for it
2: one final point here to drive it home uh Dr. Clancy did a study in 2002 with uh, with uh, Richard McNally, and uh, did another test on, uh, on on these people that had abduction memories, and uh, and she looks like she had some controls as well, people who did not have any abduction memories. And she did she did a, uh, a word association test where she would list, you know, here's five words, and then a few minutes later she would say, well, was this word on the list, and was this word on the list, and she would throw a related word. That was not on the list, like like um, say, let's see, sugar, candy, sour, bitter, and then she would say, was the word sweet on the list? And the people that had abduction memories were more likely than than non-abducted people to uh, to actually have a memory that sweet was indeed on the list when in fact it wasn't. So these people these people are are prone to uh, to not you know to associate the event with something you know, really uh, supernatural, and to actually form false memories themselves.
0: And uh, that you could take that one step further, and I think that this, um, again, also I think by the Fantasy psychologist, yeah, knows? Jim Baker wrote, you know, again, reviewing a lot of the, the recorded abduction tales, uh, believes these people are not not just prone to this sort of confabulation, but also what, um, what he calls fantasy prone. Now fantasy prone personality type is someone who was more likely to have uh, imaginary friends when they were children, to have had visions, um, to you know believe in a host of, of paranormal things, to believe that they have seen or experienced ghosts or spirits. A lot of these things, these things go hand in hand. Um, it, interestingly, you know, we had a lecture a year ago by a neurologist, Terence Hines, who is doing some very interesting work, where you know he believes he may have uncovered an actual like neurological hardwiring difference in some people who actually have the ability to. It, I don't know would it would be a good way to describe it, I think they turn off their reality testing you know, hardware in their brain to actually, wow. when fantasizing about something, to actually inhibit that part of their brain that would tell them that it's not real.
2: To actually, it's kind of like a waking dream. In a sense. To
0: actually believe it. No, it's actually I would I wouldn't make that analogy. I think it's a different phenomenon because waking dream really is a fusion between two different states, a waking state and a sleeping state. This is a pure waking state, but there are certain there are certain hardware in our brain that that um, we can't inhibit. Uh, for example, the the experiment that he did was um, if you see a word in a language that you can speak and can read. Um, you can't inhibit your ability to read that word. Um, and that, that in, in testing, comes out as a certain delay in your response time. So if you're um, shown flashcards with the word red written in green ink, and you're told to say the color of the ink, to say green, mm. it takes you what a, a fraction of a second to inhibit your your hardwiring tendency to say the word red, the word that the letters spell out. If it's written in a language that you don't read, that delay's not there. And in fact, this test has reliable, reliably been used to sniff out spies. So you can give a suspected mm. Russian spy that test using Russian words. And if they can speak Russian, there'll be a delay. And if they don't speak Russian, there won't be a delay, Um, for example. And until recently, no one has ever, ever been able to create research conditions in which that delay went away. It didn't seem that human beings had the ability to suppress that hardwiring loop. That processing just has to happen. Until, you know, uh, Hines and I think some of his colleagues, this is not, I don't think this has yet been published and peer-reviewed, but basically what, what he is finding is that in a certain percentage of the population, 2-3% of the population, under hypnosis, they can make that effect go away, which suggests that their brains are actually hardwired differently and that they have the ability to inhibit certain, you know, certain pathways that most people cannot. It would be interesting to see if these people are also excessively fantasy-prone. So we, we may, in, in, in a small subset of people, we may actually be dealing with people whose brains are literally wired differently than the rest of us. Uh, although, that, in, in addition to that, there are people who, who do not have this effect but are probably just predisposed to vivid fantasies um, to the point where they actually take on a reality or a life of their own.
3: Well, Steve, you're a neurologist. What, what, what do you think the likelihood is of a subset of people who are just wired differently.
0: Well, his his research is very compelling. This this test has been used for decades. It's a very standardized, well-recognized test. You know, psychologists know how to carry it out reliably. The results are very reproducible and very reliable. And if you can reproducibly make that effect go away, that means something. That is a genuine discovery. So I think that it's very compelling.
3: What would your hypothesis be as to how that subset was created why it exists well it's just a,
0: it's just random variation every every human trait every you know trait in any species varies on a on a on a bell curve and there are subsets and subpopulations so our hardwiring i'm sure varies in every way it's possible to vary and mm. they have uh, you know just an alternate you know, either one part of the brain is more dominant than another part, or there is some kind of pathway that exists that enables them to inhibit this this processing loop. Uh, it could be
2: very subtle. I mean, it doesn't have to be this uh, this major difference. It could be a very subtle yeah. difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, it, and it would have to be um, th- this this experiment is designed to, to to look at a very subtle phenomenon.
2: Uh, uh, Steve, right. you, mentioned, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned that they, these people have a way of uh, you know, turning off reality testing and the point I, I tried to insert there was that it, it's similar to you know, maybe not a waking dream but when you, when you are in fact dreaming and a pink elephant walks in front of you you don't think, my, that, that's quite odd you don't think that because your reality testing is kind of shut down I mean, your, your frontal lobe, isn't your frontal lobe pretty much very quiescent at that point, and and that's one of the reasons why there, it's, it doesn't seem at a place for you to have a you know a pink elephant trot by you. Yeah, um, that so that's I mean, th- th- that much
0: that much is true, and it's interesting. So I mean, the dream state is actually a different state of consciousness than the waking state. Uh, different parts of your brain are active when you're dreaming. Uh, it's and basically it's you know all the parts of your brain that are active when you're awake are active. I mean, let me say that the other way. When, you, when you're awake, all the parts of your brain are active. When you're sleeping, some of the parts of your brain are not active. And, and some the, are very active. And those parts of the brain have to, do have to do with um, certain dominant hemisphere functions like reading. It's very difficult to read while you're asleep. And also the mechanisms really? of re- reality testing.
2: Yeah, try that if you ever think I've tried of it. it many, I've tried it many times. Um, think of it
0: while you're dreaming. That it's, just, it's really hard to actually read while you're dreaming.
2: I mean, many times I've I've had lucid dreams where you actually wake up in your dream and you realize, hey, I'm in bed asleep right now, and everything that that I see and experience is a creation of my mind, and it's a very interesting experience. I recommend it, Steve. I believe you've actually had. I've had them. Yeah. Most people, I think, have
0: had. Basically, you you realize that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, and what happens there? What happens there is simply that your reality testing kicks in enough for you to realize that you're dreaming. But yeah, it's you, a very I, unstable state it's very unstable it is. your tendency it's very is either tough to maintain right you'll either fully wake up or you'll dream that dream you wake up, up which basically means that you yeah. lose the lucidity you you again lose the ability to realize that you're dreaming
2: yeah many, you can't you've got to really be careful and not get too overexcited which can happen when you're you're in you're in an environment that you have a lot of control over, or some sort of control like you know flying, making people appear, you know getting naked with movie stars. You know it's hard not to get excited, <laughs> and when you do get excited, invariably you wake up or you dream you wake up and you're like, damn. But um, of course, I lost the point I was trying to make. <laughs> okay,
3: there. you were get, you got off about naked movie stars, Bob. Yeah, don't you go
2: along that. Train that's of enough there. to
1: distract anyone. We'll go. We'll, we'll but, keep uh, Oh yes, that. reading.
2: And one of the one of the triggers, you know, you, you try to develop these triggers, t- you know, to induce lucidity in your dream, and you do so, you do some, you do a dream test, and what there's various things you could do. You can jump up in the air, and if you could make yourself fall slightly more slower or faster than physics dictates you should fall, then that's a pretty pretty good clue that that you are in fact dreaming, because uh, d- there's no way right. you're going to be able to, it, you know do that in, in real life. Yeah, There's just, just ways to
0: trigger your reality. Right, testing, and the basically. best
2: way, the best way to do it is to read something, get anything, a poster, a book, open the book up, look at some words, turn away and then look back at the writing and invariably the text will be different. It's completely different. So that, that probably ties into what you were saying, Steve, where it's hard to read in the dream. Right. Well, the things are cha- the words are changing around all the time which would make it very difficult to, dream, yeah. to read.
0: It's interesting, I mean, it's... Because we're not used to think, our our brains seamlessly create this illusion of the mind and the self for us. That it's uh, it's difficult to think about the fact that there are parts of our brain that are responsible for some specific functions, like reality testing. Most people Mm -hmm. probably aren't aware of the fact that there's a part of our brain that, in fact, does that. Uh, And part of the reason that we know that it does that is because it can get turned off. And And when it gets turned off. It can create psychosis in the waking state, or it can, you know, it, it's a normal part of the dream state where fantastical, bizarre things happen, and they make sense to you in the dream because you're not, you're the part of your brain that should tell you that doesn't make sense is not functioning at the time. Right. it's asleep. That part of your brain's asleep.
2: How many times did you wake up and you say, "What the hell was I thinking?" You know, <laughs> yeah. how could I not possibly imagine that that was okay? Right, because it's a different. It's a different awa- state of awareness that's
0: produced by a different, you know, set of of parts of your brain working together.
2: Right. But uh, just a quick aside on the uh, on the lucid dreaming. I, I really recommend that. Uh, look up lucid dreaming on the internet, and uh, it's really a fascinating experience. It's it's bizarre in that when, once you have once you become lucid in the dream the dream world looks even more realistic than than you could imagine. I remember, you know, walking around, looking at my brother in my dream, thinking, wow, this is just a creation of my mind, and it's just so realistic. You know, I even, like, knocked on on a piece of wood and listened to the echo and, and just marveled at, at the fidelity of the experience. It was uh, very, very cool.
0: It's interesting. I wonder what that says about the future of virtual reality when we can essentially plug experiences into our brain, will they be indistinguishable from real reality? And I think the suggestion is Absolutely. that they will be. I mean, your brain, if you, know, you make those neurons fire artificially versus through sensory input, the brain doesn't know the difference. Those neurons fire, it creates a very believable experience to you.
2: Well, reality is is a, is a construct. Your, your mind is, is building, creates your reality. And, uh, I mean, one aspect of perception, vision, is is uh, is... An incredible construct. It's, it's you know, vision is a creation. It's not a, a tape recorder passively recording what's going on. Your mind creates, you know, creates your visual world for you to such a degree. If you, I once saw a, a picture of what the image on your retina really looks like, and it was this small, upside down, kind of indistinct. You know, blurry image, you know, the the, the the tiny center of it was somewhat more in focus than the other parts. But you'd be amazed at how – what a paltry thing it was. And your mind takes that and, and creates this, you know, magnificent three-dimensional world from these two little, you know, postage stamp-sized two-dimensional images. And it's just amazing what what it does. It, right. The there's, mind a lot, there's a lot of that.
0: processing going on to create the illusion of depth and contrast and things like that. And oh, that's right. the source of all visual – Optical illusions. Optical illusions yes. are basically ways of tricking that processing uh, into thinking that there's depth when there isn't, or uh, contrast when there isn't, whatever. So that taking advantage of the um, the methods that the brain uses to process that information and right. create the again the illusion of three dimensionality, etc.
2: And I I, int- I read an article about this this gentleman who was blind for most of his life and uh, was given sight through some operation. And uh, you'd think, wow, he's got his vision back. Uh, great for him, but actually, it was actually a terrible thing for him because because he did not, his brain did not have to process visual image, images his whole life. It really wasn't up to the task. Well, it never uh, you, developed you, it. it. It never right. It never developed. I, I kind of forget if it was a, he had a few years of, uh, of vision, uh, but not you know, enough. I mean, you, but you, not your, enough.
0: Your optical cortex only develops in response to visual stimuli. So if you if you're if you're blind from birth, you're the brain, the, the seeing part of your brain, never develops, and then you right. know, there's nothing that could be done to make you not blind.
2: But he, uh, I, he must have had some, you know, some years of, of vision because he, well, he did have some sort of vision, but it was this real, this kind of chaotic thing that uh, that it w- was not a pleasant experience for him. And but surprisingly, he was he was immune to uh, to illusions because. His brain wasn't constructing this nice reality, visual reality for him. Wasn't doing so the processing. So it, yeah. right, it wasn't doing so. There was no processing to trick, because it, the processing just wasn't really, really quite there for him. But the downside
0: was the vision wasn't very useful for him. No, it was just a, a sort of a
2: unprocessed chaos of the, signals yeah, the, that the, the brain didn't
0: know how to deal with.
2: Which, which I mean, but wouldn't I wouldn't I would actually I think it would be cool to actually experience that for a brief a brief time to see what, what does this raw image look like? And yeah. then, you know, just to see,
0: oh, wow, at,
2: I mean, look at all this noise and static and, and stuff flowing around there that, uh, and I think you could better appreciate, um, yeah. you know, what you're, visual centers of your brain create for you. Well, that is that is
0: all the time we have for this week. Just to, to say once again, that book by Susan Clancy is abducted, How People Come to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens from Harvard University Press. Looks like it's going to be a good read. Bobby said it's coming out in October. Is yes. that what you read? Uh, so that, that definitely look forward to getting that book when it comes out. Well, thank you again for joining us this week on The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Perry, Bob, Evan, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Our pleasure.
3: Excellent. You're we'll welcome. see you next week.
0: Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information on this and other episodes, see our website at www.theness.com.